Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Joe Vitale of Hypnotic Marketing and www.mrfire.com. This is another Hypnotic Gold members-only audio interview, and I'm very excited. I'm interviewing somebody from overseas who is coming out with a brand-new book that is breaking new ground, and you'll be the first to hear about this. So, without further ado, let me jump in and say I'll be interviewing Tim Kenning, and Tim Kenning is an NLP business master practitioner, trainer, and author of The Houdini Principle. The Houdini Principle is one of the most exciting books I've seen in quite some time. Those of you who know me and my work know that I like to go back into the past and learn from people who were legendary and find out what they did back then that we can do today. For example, I wrote the only business book on P.T. Barnum called There's a Customer Born Every Minute. And I simply went back, reviewed Barnum's life, and found what worked for him then. And they're the same principles that will work today and even better because we can add technology to them. And I did the same thing with my book, The Seven Lost Secrets of Success, where I researched Bruce Barton, an unknown genius, at least unknown today because he's forgotten, who co-founded BBDO, one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. Well, Tim Kenning has done the same thing, but he's done it with Harry Houdini, one of the greatest escape artists and magicians of all times, one of my first idols and somebody who, when I was a youngster, I wanted to become like. In fact, I had the stage name Harry Excello, and I modeled Houdini to come up with that. Well, modeling is what Tim Kenning does, and that's what he does differently, too, because he uses NLP tools in a unique and novel way to create new concepts and products. And one of these is what we'll be discussing today, and that's using the principles from magic and escapology, more specifically, Harry Houdini, one of the greatest magicians of all time, as a resource for greater creativity and more. So that's why I'm excited for this exclusive interview. This probably is even the first interview Tim has done for this particular approach, this product. So everybody listening, you are lucking out in a big way. This is a historic moment. So Tim, are you on the line? I am, Joe. All right. Well, thank you for being here. It must be an evening over there in England somewhere. Is it 7 p.m. or something like that? That's right. Dark and cold. Dark and cold. Well, I'm in Texas. I had to turn the AC on just to chill out a little bit. Well, I'm excited to have you here, so thanks for making time. Your book is great. It's called The Houdini Principle. And is it out now, or is it just coming out? It's due to for, for release on the 80th anniversary of Houdini's death, which is this Halloween. Ah, yes, the famous Halloween seance. We've been trying That's to right. reach Houdini ever since he left. Has he reported in yet? I think he has. Oh, might, you think he has? Yeah, I might give you some clues as to why I think that, too. Oh, let's hold that one for a little later in this interview. But don't forget, if Houdini's reported in from the dead, we want to hear about it. We want to hear about it on this call. Well, how do you like to be introduced? How do, what's your little elevator pitch when you're in an elevator and they say, hey, Tim Kenning, what do you do? What do you say? That's a good question. I think sometimes when I'm being a bit flippant, I say I do just as I please, which was... I like that answer. I say it quite a bit. <laughs> part of the plan, part of the plan with the NLP tools was to do something where I kind of got to make a living out of being myself. Mm. I got to look at the things that I liked, that I enjoyed in a different way so I could turn them into something new, unique that other people could benefit from. And when did you start doing that? Because that sounds like something we all should be doing. I mean, being ourselves and profiting from it, come on, that's like the holy grail for everybody on the line. 
it's a direction I'm heading in. Let's say I'm not quite there yet, but mm. I've done a few things that allow me to free up my time and do more of the things that I enjoy. So, Well, you must enjoy magic, and you must ex enjoy studying Houdini. Are you a magician? I'm not, and that's one of the things that people ask me about that. Mm -hmm. But when I model Houdini, there's a thing about modeling that I, I often don't describe myself as having modeled Houdini, because often you look to a role model, and you're looking to them to be able to be inspired and do the kind of things that they do. Mm. Now, what I realized was when I was a teenager and reading all this stuff was that I didn't want to be jumping off bridges in handcuffs. <laughs> I didn't want to be buried alive. In fact, I don't really want to be buried at all, but there was something about the man mm. that I was inspired by, and I didn't have the tools then to do what I've now done with all that information. Yeah, you've done something pretty interesting and pretty unique here, and I have to admit it because as much as I know about NLP, I know about hypnosis, I know about magic, I'm a lifetime member of the Society of American Magicians. I'm a guy who wanted to be an escape artist when I was a kid, as the, using the name Harry Excello. I studied Harry Houdini when I was a kid, long before NLP was ever around, and of course I didn't know what I was doing. But you've done the modeling part, and maybe you should define real quickly what you mean by modeling, just in case somebody on the uh, listening in doesn't know what that means. Okay. Now, from NLP circles, modeling will be taken to mean to get the same kind of result as your role model. Mm -hmm. It would be to duplicate, emulate. But I didn't want to be a magician. I didn't want to be an escape artist or a performer. So what I did with what I had was not use Houdini as a role model, but as a resource. Mm. And I just went and explored what principles I could find. And the result is the Houdini principle. That's a nice distinction. I like what you said there, because most of us get caught up in modeling people by trying to mirror them and becoming a duplicate or becoming a clone of them in some ways. And on one level, that can be admirable if that's what you're wanting to do. If you are wanting to become Harry Houdini or P.T. Barnum or anybody you name, that could be useful. But if you don't want to be Harry Houdini, a legend in history for what he stood for, but you want to use some of the things that he was good at but in a different field, which is what I understand you're saying here. That's it. Exactly it. Then that's genius. That's brilliant. So that leads me into, okay, why Houdini? Out of everybody you could study, why Harry Houdini? What, what did you like about him? That's probably noteworthy to ask. Here's the deal. We can track back to doing more of what I enjoy. Mm. I already had the books. I already had the knowledge and the interest. What I added to it were the NLP tools, and I started asking better questions. So when I went exploring, I discovered that there were things that I could use and transfer to different fields. So it wasn't so much that I went looking for this stuff. I already had it, which is kind of the point. This is stuff you've already got that you can start looking at in a new way. Well, what do you mean by that? Because I'm not sure I'm following. It's stuff we already okay. got. But well, in what, way. You, people have interest. My interest was Harry Houdini. So I had a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, a lot of books, and a lot of resources that mm. I could turn to that I'd already read. I didn't have to go and find these things. Mm -hmm. I just took what I was already interested in and started asking new questions. Well, then, what were these new questions? Because we, we've got to learn what you've learned from Harry Houdini, but we also want to keep one eye on the ball in the sense that these questions can help us learn from other people we've admired or other resources we've admired. Is that correct? Yes, okay. of course. So if you have enough input, enough information, enough of a resource 
to consider, you can start to see patterns and connections between different elements of various pieces of information. Different things that Harry did in different contexts start to have similarities when you look at them across you know, a broad scope. So I asked, what's this an example of? What's this good for? Where else could I use this? Mm. Obviously, it's a bit more involved than that, but that's the basic pattern. Well, repeat those questions. Uh, one of them was, what is this? What is this an example of? What is this an example of? What is, what this, is this good for? Good for, yeah. And where else can I use this? And where else can I use it? Okay, those are all good questions we can ask the, of, of anybody or anything that we're admiring. Give me an example of any of those questions applying it with Harry Houdini. What did you discover? I know this is in your book, The Houdini Principle, but the people listening won't have it just yet. Okay. Imagine this scenario, okay? You're sitting in a, in a theater watching a magic trick, a performance. And once the trick has been performed, you have that wonderful moment of awe, incredulity, and a gasp, if you like. Now, that state you're in where you have no idea how the trick was done is kind of like having a problem that you don't know the solution to. Mm. So when I looked at magic and the principles behind magic, I realized that there was a point where magic and problem solving met, and that was at the level of perception. Mm. Because they're both examples of incomplete perception. If you have a problem you can't solve, or a magic trick you don't know the solution to, they're kind of like sisters, brothers and sisters. So by using some questions around the magic and the principles behind the magic, we could start to find out what kind of questions we could ask in problem solving. Okay, give me an example, because I like this parallel that you're drawing right here, and I'm right with you, because I can see the stage, I can see a magic effect taking place, and I can, even with my knowledge of magic, there's often I'll, I'll be confused or baffled. So how do I extend that into, for example, the business or marketing arena where I'm baffled by a problem? Okay, the full problem-solving model is in the book, but I'll give you one example that started the whole thing off. Now, when Harry Houdini was challenged to escape from a safe, it was named as a burglar-proof safe, one of the latest models. In fact, it was so big and so heavy, they had to reinforce the stage for him to actually uh, perform the trick. Hmm. Now, if you've ever seen the film with Tony Curtis. Yeah, famous film. That's it. They now sort of transfer that trick into a courtroom with a much smaller safe. But there's a great line from the film that sums up the whole principle. Houdini has to get himself basically locked into the safe and he escapes out. Now, the trick was, according to his wife, was to get the people in the court to lock him in because safes were made to prevent people from breaking in rather than breaking out. Mm. So there's something there about which direction you are thinking and what might be a 180-degree turn from that. What would be counterintuitive? What would be going against the grain, against the flow? Because if you're doing something that everybody else is doing and you're not getting a result, it might be a good idea to take a look in the other direction. So if people listening have been trying to get more traffic to their website or they're trying to create a product or they're trying to solve some sort of problem of any sort in their business, they're probably looking at it the way everybody else is looking at it, much like when everybody looked at the safe that Houdini was getting into, they all looked at it from the outside and they were all thinking in one particular direction. But what you're suggesting is that 
if they kind of shift their, not kind of, but they have to entirely shift their focus. And Imagine look, a 180-degree turn from mm-hmm. where you are now. You could physically do it. You could physically face the problem in front of you and then turn around and look behind you. You mean in their mind that they can have the problem kind of floating in their awareness and then walk behind it? You can do it two different ways. You can have it on a screen in front of you, imagine a screen in front of you, mm-hmm. and then just turn and face the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. You can also walk through the screen and turn around and look at what's on the back of that screen. Oh, these are interesting. These are mind-shifting techniques you're talking about here. Yeah. Which are kind of magical in their own selves. Indeed. And so these were the kind of things that you found from studying Houdini, that there was some parallels to problem-solving and to magic. Yes. And, of course, you talk about it in your book, The Houdini Principle, which should be in stores. And you have a website that I think is Houdini Principles. Is it Houdini Principles, singular, .co.uk? .co.co.uk? That's right. So it's not a com. Houdini Principle, singular, .co.uk. And that's principal, not principal, as sometimes people get confused. Principal, P-L-E. That's right, yes. Dot .co.uk. Dot well, I'll be giving that out again later. I just want to make sure people know that they can go there and start looking. Okay. And I strongly encourage you to get the book. The book is fascinating reading. And that's why I'm interviewing Tim right now, Tim Kenning, author of the book, The Houdini Principle. Well, tell me some more about what you've learned from studying Houdini or a principle or two that we can you know, take to the bank. Okay. The other thing that seemed to be really strong was his ability to create challenges. Not just take on challenges, Hmm. but create challenges, create scenarios. But basically, he got to showcase his strength in such a way that he was kind of assured of success. It wasn't about feel the fear and do it anyway. It was about doing it and reducing the risk and playing to your strengths, basically. Now, this is very fascinating. I don't know if you know it, I have an audio program with the company Nightingale Conant that's called The Power of Outrageous Marketing. And in there, I talk about the power of issuing a challenge. And I do mention Houdini, and I mention a lot of other people, whether it's Evil Knievel or Muhammad Ali or Robert Allen. There's a long list of people who have created challenges in order to get publicity. Now, I know that Houdini was a marketing genius himself. That's one of the reasons I'm fascinated by him. And as a side note, you sent me an email the other day that said that Houdini's wife kept a publicist employed for 20 years after his death. Nearly 20 years, apparently. And I found that fascinating because I'm always saying that you or somebody you hire has to market you or your business or it will die. And here we are learning. I mean, that was news to me that Houdini, who had passed on, his wife was still promoting him in his name, which is one reason why we still know it today. It's been wedged into our collective consciousness. So I find that fascinating, but I also find it fascinating that the challenge was so powerful. And you said something interesting, that it's not about facing the fear. It's about reducing the risk. So maybe you can explain that a little bit so we all understand in a way that we can relate to and probably implement the nature of a challenge. Okay. Well, I'm going to start from the very end. Mm. Houdini's crowning glory, if you like, in his opinion, was his Chinese water torture cell. Yeah, it's a famous trick. Now, for those people who don't know, it's kind of like a glass telephone booth. Houdini was lowered into it. It was filled with water with his ankles in stocks. And the stocks 
clamped onto the top of the rest of the container. So everyone could see him hanging upside down, trapped underwater as the curtain was lowered and the music played on. So in essence, the design of that trick was actually one of the safest. It looked hair-raising and really frightening, but it was designed in such a way that basically, and I'm being kind of flippant here, it was a demonstration of Houdini's ability to hold his breath underwater for a couple of minutes. <laughs> now, this is absolutely fascinating because I have, of course, seen pictures of him doing it. I've seen the famous Tony Curtis movie of Houdini, which is a legendary, it's a classic movie. Everybody should see that. And it does look, it, look, it looks terrifying. It looks like there's no way he's going to make it. And what you're saying is that this is a calculated non-risk. It's not really even a risk. I mean, there might be some risk there. Is that correct? There is, obviously, but built into it. I think one of the things that nobody got to see that is real genius is the safety features that were designed into his escapes, mm. which allowed him to step forward and do the escapes, knowing that he had some kind of backup plan. If anything should go wrong, he had a way out. The guy with the axe standing in front of the, the water torture cell that the audience is told is there in case there's an emergency would probably be just as dangerous smashing the glass with him in the cabinet. <laughs> than, you know, at the bottom of the cabinet, there were two handles hmm. on the inside and accessible from the outside, and these were valves that let the water out. So within his reach, he had something that could relieve the situation if things got out of hand. Perfectly safe. So how do we translate that into a business situation or an internet marketing situation or a selling situation? What would be some sort of comparable example? Well, the first step, I believe, is to switch from what most people do, which is focus on developing weak areas. Flip that over to developing your strengths. Now, there's a notion in personal development that says work on your weaknesses and build them up. There's another notion that says if you build up your strengths, you can get to a place where you can, for example, hire somebody to do the things that you don't want to do anymore, mm. your weak areas. So the first piece would be to focus on what it is that you're really good at. Now, one of the ways that you can do that is to make sure that you have a scenario where if things don't work out, you have another backup plan. You have something that you can step back to or you just take your strength and do them in another context. This is not about stepping outside what your comfort zone is. It's about taking it with you and expanding it. So at a sort of conceptual level, that's what the idea is. And, and one, you, of the things, go ahead. one of the things that you can do with your strengths is trade them. You can trade your knowledge and expertise with someone else. You can add more value to what you have by using this as kind of like a commodity. Houdini taught uh, a Japanese guy English. Not that his English was great, but the Japanese guy taught him how to regurgitate um, things that he'd swallowed, where he would hide keys in little capsules and stuff. Oh, interesting. So there's a way of looking at what you're good at in such a way that you add more to it. You don't have to try to do too much with it. You just have to think about it in a new way. Different context. What else can I do with this? And that's one of the first steps. 
So what you're asking people to do is really focus on their thinking, their perception, and becoming aware of what they're already doing. Most of the time, taking it for granted, most of the time it's unconscious. They're just looking at their problems, their business, their situation in the same old way. And you're asking them to do a little flip or two in their mind to begin seeing new possibilities. Is my correct? Yeah, kind of, there's a piece to it because what you are good at is often something that you just take for granted. Mm. It won't be in your awareness because you can just do it. Well, how do you find out what that is then? Because I can imagine people saying, what I'm good at. I don't know what I'm good at. What do people ask you to do for them? Mm. What do people come to you for and say, can you help me with this? And you think, well, yeah, sure, no problem. When do you get into a state where you feel totally relaxed, at ease, that kind of flow state? Where does time just fly by? What kind of things are you doing? Because those all point towards something you're really good at and that you could capitalize on. So it's becoming aware of their already perfect talents, the ones they're taking for granted, the ones that they're doing by breathing and they don't think too much about. Yeah. Whatever that happens to be, but you're also suggesting that they become aware of it and then capitalize on it. Again, it goes with awareness, it goes with thinking, it becomes uh, more of a cognitive activity. Sure, yeah. Well, tell me some more. What else have you learned from the Houdini study and your book, The Houdini Principle? The first thing that I really picked up on that I thought would be easy for people to relate to was here's somebody that could inspire you. Mm. He had what they call in Yiddish chutzpah, if I pronounce that right. Mm -hmm. Which, if people don't know, the basic definition is um, go for it, lots of confidence, but with a slight edge to it. The classic definition is the child being accused of murdering his parents, mm. asking for leniency from the judge because he's an orphan. Mm. So that's the kind of definition. It's that kind of mentality where you, you're going to go for it and, and do stuff. The story that inspired me the most initially was the one where Houdini gets a job at the age of 14. He's walking through the streets of New York and coming down Broadway. Outside a tie cutter's, I think it was Richter's handmade ties on 502 Broadway, there is a queue of guys and a sign in the window that said assistant tie cutter wanted. So Houdini sees this queue of guys, straightens himself up, walks to the front of the queue, plucks the sign out of the window and says, job's taken, and gets the job. It was that kind of confidence and brashness that I thought, that's inspiring. Well, how do we get that kind of confidence and brassness? Because, you know, I hear from people from time to time that says, you know, Joe Vitale, I know you're going on Larry King, uh, the TV show. I know that you are in the limelight, that you have these best-selling books. Um, you must be comfortable by being in the spotlight, and they're not. They don't feel like they have confidence. They don't feel inspired or inspiring. They feel kind of shy, retiring, timid, or reclusive, and they want it to be that way. So how do they find that inner confidence, whatever you want to call that, that people like Harry Houdini had? Well, this is the way I did it. Mm -hmm. start there. I started to use the NLP tools, and it's one of the classic tools that says, well, if I could, how would I? Mm. What needs to be there in order for me to be able to do this? Now, what the NLP did for me was give me a format where I saw what the blanks were that I needed to fill in. So I started to look at beliefs, and initially, I'll tell you the little story which was 
I was inspired to do by this. I had made a list of all the people that I thought might be interested in learning new communication skills and what I had to offer and put that to one side. And then one day while I was walking down the street in Norwich, where I live, I realized that I was walking down a road where one of these offices was located. So I thought, okay, I was dressed smartly enough and I did the little Houdini stuff. I walked into reception just to see how far I could get. Yes. I walked up to reception. And my state, if you understand energy work, which I assume you do, mm-hmm. must have been huge because I felt so confident. I hadn't given myself enough time to talk myself out of this. I'd just gone, let's just do it. And I walked in up to the receptionist and said, I believe you have a marketing and media company in here. And she pointed to the sign that was on the wall and said, well, there's that one there. I just looked at her and said, I'd like to speak to someone from it, please. I did the old NLP trick, raised my eyebrows, gestured to the phone, and she just walked away over to the phone. Mm. She failed on all the duties of a receptionist, in effect. (laughs) Who was I? Where was I from? What did I want? She just went to the phone and said, there's somebody down here who wants to see you. I think you better come and see him. So the lady comes down from the office of upstairs, the personal assistant to whoever, whoever was up there. And I did much the same thing with her again. I said, I've come to see you because I think I have something pretty cool for you. It'll take a couple of minutes if you just want to sit down. I turned away from her, sat down, looked at her, leaving her standing where she was. And it was almost as if she couldn't resist but come over and sit down and listen to me. What I found was this state that I was in allowed me access to a lot of the tools I've been taught in NLP. Because I think Richard Bandler, who I learned the NLP from, plays a little trick on some people. He makes you feel good at the beginning of the day while you're learning. Mm. So when you feel good, you have access to all the things you've learned. So spoke to this woman for a couple of minutes and then walked back upstairs into the office where there was one of the partners sitting at the back of the room. And I said something to him like, now you don't know who I am. I've just walked in off the street unannounced, but I wouldn't be here if I didn't think I had something that you might be interested in. I sat down with him and talked to him and said nothing he could disagree with. It was like an extended yes set. If you understand a yes, if you're a salesman, you get people to say yes, yes, yes. Everything I said was true, and he was nodding away quite nicely, and I felt I was doing rather well. But what I'd lost sight of, perhaps, is what the next step ought to be. Until he prompted me, and what he said was basically, so what do you want? Mm. Okay, I want to come back, and I want to demonstrate that I can do something of value for you guys. So we made an appointment, he gave me a brochure, and I walked out of the building. And I thought, nod to Harry, thanks very much. And then I read the brochure. It was actually the wrong company. (laughs) I'd gone in, pitched myself, got to have an appointment with someone, and it was not who I thought I was talking to. Well, actually better. It was actually better than I thought. Yeah, except for that little bump in the road, that's a pretty hypnotic story. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful. You know, it occurs to me that there may be a, a rare person who doesn't know what NLP is. And since sure. we're throwing that phrase all around a little bit, can you give me, you know, the one second, one sentence, whatever you want to call it, uh, brief definition for somebody who may not know? I'll give you the official one, and then I'll explain it. The official one is 
is the structure of the subjectivity of a you know, the structure of subject ex, subjective experience and what can be calculated from it. In other words, how do people think, and what can we do when we find out how they think? It's basically a set of tools and rules of thumb to get people to do more of the things they say they want to do. And it seems to be founded on this notion of modeling excellence. Mm. They found people who were excellent communicators and absorbed what it was they were doing, patterned that so they could teach it to others. But where I'm coming from is, okay, so we've got modeling excellence. What else? What else can we do with these tools they discovered? I like that you asked that question because just the question, what else, opens your mind to see new possibilities. Yeah. where everybody else might be seeing the same thing in the same room, if you say what else or what else is here, or what else is possible, you start to see things that the others in the room may not have seen. So I like that question, and I want to be sure to define NLP as the initials, means neuro-linguistic programming. And you do talk about this in your book, The Houdini Principle. So I think, you're, you're, once again, your book is brilliant. It's the kind of thing that everybody on this call needs to read. And the website, again, is Houdini Principle dot co dot uk www.houdini h-o-u-d-i-n-i principle p-r-i-n-c-i-p-l-e dot c-o dot uk so okay, tell me just, just picked up a copy of one of the first nlp books so i make sure i get this right the study of the structure of subjective experience it's a bit of a mouthful but that was the subtitle of the first book uh, what is the first book that you're holding we might as well it's say it's called neurolinguistic programming volume one yeah, by uh, Robert Dills, John Grinder, Richard Bandler, and Judith Delosier. Yep. Apparently, the subtitle, there wasn't enough room to put the full subtitle on the book. <laughs> so the full title is The Study of the sub Structure of Subjective Experience and What Can Be Calculated From It. Yeah, it's a whole fascinating area. But you've taken it to a new level, Tim, with your book, The Houdini Principle. And again, Houdini was such a colorful character anyway that he's fascinating just to study. So I know you had a good time doing that. Sure, I got to come to the States, went to the museum, went to an Escapology convention. That was great. Oh, where was the museum at for Houdini? Uh, there's a number of them. There is one in what he claims to be his hometown in Appleton, Wisconsin. Oh, I know there are small ones around in the Venetian in Las Vegas at the Houdini Magic Shop. Right beside it is a small Houdini museum. Apparently there was. It's now closed. Oh, it is? You check out uh, Houdini Lives. Uh, there's a website with sort of current up Houdini updates on it. And there's a report saying it's closed. It's been closed a few years now. Oh, that's too bad. It cost $2 to go through, and I did learn a few things. For example, Houdini was such a marketing uh, student that he would buy books that were printed in London. And, and I have one of the original books that he studied from, and it was printed in something like 1870. And it was, a, it was a whole investigation, like an encyclopedia of advertising techniques that were called modern advertising techniques, but of course this was in 1870. And I also love the idea that Harry Houdini studied P.T. Barnum. He collected Barnum's books. He collected Barnum's letters. He was a bit of a collector when it came to anything concerning the circus because he was learning from another great marketing mind, P.T. Barnum, the one I wrote about in my book, There's a Customer Born Every Minute. So Houdini is a fascinating guy, and I want to know what else, uh, another parallel or another principle, because the people listening want these tips and tools that they can take to the bank, and I know they'll all go get your book, but let's give them something to chew on. Okay. Let's start with the strength thing again. The first piece was to focus on your strengths, mm. identify them, and then do more of them. 
Now the next piece, and it comes from how Harry would, I believe, suss out jail cells to escape from, hmm. was that he would go and present the police officers with a handcuff trick and ask to use one of their cells while he was escaping. So while he was there doing what he already knew how to do, and in effect it was his act, he was actually gathering information for the next step. Ah. So he used his strength as an opportunity to discover more and perhaps create even more opportunities. Oh, I like that. I hadn't thought about that either. You've really taken this investigation to a deep level here. Is that Houdini already knew what he was good at, and he could use that. He can go into the cell. He can ask to be able to escape from a handcuff, which he knew how to do in his sleep, basically. But he was in a cell, which he may not have known about otherwise. And while in that cell, he was able to get information. Test out the lock, check out the locks. And then, of course, he moved on to doing jail escapes. So basically, he took what he knew how to do and used that to create the next level. And one of the things I thought about doing was, rather than taking your strength and expanding upon it, you then used your strength as a place to retreat to. So it would become a reliable method, a way of saving face or something you could fall back on. Once you started thinking about your strengths as if they were uh, your fallback position, what else would that allow you to do? Where else could you confidently step forward knowing that that was behind you? For example, there's a guy <clears throat> who I told this to who then took it into a presentation that he was doing uh, for a group of people at work. And basically, he wanted to be able to do more than he had done previously with his presentation. He had already the PowerPoint slides, and he said, well, what does this allow me to do? This gives me everything I need to cover. This allows me to keep track. And in that place, I can actually be a lot freer with the presentation. I can go off at tangents and just talk about whatever comes to me, knowing that I can always fall back on the PowerPoint presentation. Oh, interesting. So that was the way one of these guys used it. So in other words, in that particular case, he was giving a speech, and he already had his defined area. He had his PowerPoint. He knew what his comfort zone was, but that was also his fallback position. He can ad-lib. He could uh, be spontaneous, and if any of that became oh, uncomfortable or he wasn't sure what to say next, he just goes back to the PowerPoint. He goes back That's to it. his already proven strength. That's it. Oh, I like that. So what you get to do is you become stronger. Mm. So now he's got another facet or aspect to that strength. So suddenly what he can fall back on becomes bigger. I like that. So what's another example of using the Houdini principle in business? For these people who are listening who are largely Internet marketers or business people or entrepreneurs, I want to be sure that they get it. Uh, they probably already got a whole lot of that. They have to think differently and ask different questions, which will lead to different kind of discoveries, which they can then act on. But what else is something juicy that's from your book or from Houdini or your own experience? I think um, one of the things that I touch upon briefly in the book is that I do a whole rundown of his career and look at all the decision points where he decided to change what he was doing and move on to the next step. Hmm. And what I'm looking for is a pattern, a pattern of continual development. What kind of questions is he asking? What's next? Where else can I go with this? How can I combine what I've already got with something else I've already got that, that aren't 
connected already? Can I take different aspects of what I'm doing, combine them? For example, he would escape from handcuffs. That was his publicity stunt in the police cells. But nobody really got to see that. He would get in the press quite often, but only a handful of people got to actually experience it. Now, he was a strong swimmer as well, so one of the things he decided to do was jump off bridges into rivers in handcuffs. So now lots of people could get to see him do that. And then after that, once he started escaping from packing cases on stage, he then took the packing case outside and was handcuffed, nailed in a packing case, and that was lowered in the river. And you see this pattern throughout his career. He's continually combining different elements and different factors from different areas and creating something new. That's fascinating. Well, you know, it raises the question that you have modeled um, Houdini, and we are learning from that. Did Houdini model somebody? I guess he modeled P.T. Barnum to an extent because he studied him and collected him. But in your research, was there anybody in particular that Houdini seemed to model? I don't think model because he seemed to be breaking the mold or creating the mold in the first place. He certainly learned from anyone he could. In the early days in the circus, he was around guys that had extraordinary abilities, like the Japanese acrobat that taught him how to regurgitate uh, things he'd swallowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a guy who had no arms. Apparently, he taught him how to tie knots with his toes. Mm. Strong men. He would get tips from strong men about building up his physique. So he was just hungry for ways of developing himself. And that, I mean, that's great. You can look around at the people that you know or people that are around you and go, so what are you good at? Yes. Which is what we're doing with these calls right even now. I mean, we're learning from you. We're finding out what you're good at. You've been finding out what Houdini's good at. And we're all sharing it so that we're all learning from each other. But I think the principle, that the walk-away tip here, is that we can do that in all situations. You just look around your room or your office or your mall or wherever your business, wherever you happen to be, and see what you can learn from somebody who's good at something. They're doing it naturally, and you may not know how to do it. But if they teach you, you may be able to use it in your work and, uh, and take yourself to a new level. So I liked Houdini was, in a way, always challenging himself, it appears. He may have been doing it naturally. He may have been doing it unconsciously. Who knows? But the whole narration that you've been giving us is that he kept raising the odds for himself and expanding his own strength and building on his strength. And in doing that, one of the things he would do when he had a better method would be to give away the old one, perform it for free, or give it to his brother Hardin to do. Now, that's interesting. As he got a new method, a better method, he gave away the... What do you mean he gave it away, to, besides to uh, his brother? Okay, so either he'd reveal the secret. Mm. If there was, For example, he used to escape from a coffin, or a box that was coffin-shaped. And part of the act said, well, look, other people are doing this act, and the way they're doing it is by having short screws in the bottom of the coffin and then pushing the lid and the side off the bottom. And mm. he would invite people up on stage to examine the screws of the, in the base of his coffin, and they were a good two inches in length. So obviously that's not how he was doing his. But that is how he was doing his, except he'd come up with a better method of lifting the lid and sides off the bottom, and that was to <laughs> put the screws into dowels that had been drilled into the base of the, uh, mm. the sides. Mm. So he had a, an improved method on the one he was originally using, so he gave away the old one as part of the act. So... Other people who were performing that and used the old method were kind of like, well, 
people are going to ask us about you know what we do, and we don't know. Mm. We can't answer that anymore because we have short screws in the box. Interesting. That's a foot positioned himself in the market by being the one that everybody else had to catch up to. Yes. Well, that's a fundamental principle in, in marketing is that you do want to be first to market because that's who people usually remember if you've uh, done your marketing correctly and they get to hear about it. And Houdini was always breaking new ground, but what I didn't realize is that as he broke new ground, as he escalated what he was doing, he gave away the previous whatever it was, the secret or the method or the trick, he gave that away, passing it on to his brother or just making it public. Yep. That's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. His straitjacket escape has an interesting strategy attached to that too. Hmm, tell me. He first saw the straitjacket, I think, in the late 1899, somewhere in a mental institute in Canada, I believe. So basically he saw in that an escape. But it didn't go down particularly well because he hadn't perfected how to perform it. It's when it became a performance that it really took off. But initially, he would perform the escape and be concealed from view while he did it. Now, what happened was he came out sometime later looking quite sort of disheveled and, and a bit exhausted. And people <laughs> went, well, so what? You must have had help. It didn't convince them. Now, ah. Hardeen, his brother, was performing this and... Somebody in the audience was shouting out and saying, no, come on, you must have had help to do this. The two policemen that put him in it were convinced that he had to have some means of uh, aiding himself out of this. Hmm. And he said, oh, okay, I will do it full view, but not tonight because I'm tired. I'll do it Saturday night full view. So big notice outside the theater, loads of people come to it. It goes down the storm because you can see the contortions and the and the the struggle of getting out of the jacket becomes a little piece of drama. So when Houdini heard about this, he did something with it that I thought was just a touch of genius. Mm. He would perform it concealed first, plant people in the audience to say, you've had help, we want to see you do it full view, we want to see you get out of this, to which he would concede and say something like, okay, I'll do it. No, not tonight. You'll have to come back. Saturday night, see me do it again. So these guys have already paid to come and see him. Right. Come back and see him do it again. Beautiful. Now, we move on from this. When other people start doing it, he eventually ends up performing this outside for free, dangling upside down from one of the tallest buildings in whatever town he was in or city. There's another piece to that as well, because he didn't just pick any old building. He picked the most significant building he could find. He wanted to be front-page news. So which building did he pick? The newspaper office. <laughs> now, apparently, the paths crossed between Hardin, his brother, and Houdini in one of the cities in the U.S. where Houdini's hanging upside down doing his straitjacket release and Hardin hires boys to hand out flyers to his show. So people would think it was Hardeen hanging from oh. Houdini. Now, I've got to give Hardeen some, Hardeen some credit for that, but I don't think Houdini liked that. So I'm sure he did not like that. Oh, those are fascinating stories. There's marketing lessons that are being shouted out here. I love this. I love this. Well, again, I've been talking to Tim Kenning. He's the author of the book, The Houdini Principle, and his website is www.houdiniprinciple.com. C-O-dot-U-K. That's www.houdinprinc 
C-I-P-L-E dot C-O dot U-K. Tim, we're running out of time. Are there a couple final points, tips, principles, thoughts that you'd like to share with people? Hmm. I think what Houdini did for me was that he carved his own niche. Hmm. When you look at him, he took something. Basically, he took what the spiritualists were doing, which is escaping from bonds in order to present a spiritual act, and then getting back into the bonds and saying it was spirits. He took that and saw potential in the actual escape. Oh, that's interesting. Well, he was also then, he was again learning or modeling, if you will, from something else that was going on in his time period, because the whole spiritual spiritualism and seances and channeling and all of that was happening in a very big way during his lifetime. Very much so. And this kind of demonstrates the point. He wasn't modeling these guys to become a spiritualist medium. Mm. He took what they were doing and said, what well, is an example of? Where else can I use this? Oh, I like that a lot. So he was using the very thing that you talk about today Indeed. in your book, The Houdini Principle. Yep. Well, this has been fascinating. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and for making oh. this your first interview, the exclusive for everybody listening. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. Well, everybody, this has been another Hypnotic Gold Members only audio recording. I'm Joe Vitale. My main website is mrfire.com, www.mrfire.com, mrfire.com. And I've been interviewing Tim Kenning, who's the author of a great book, The Houdini Principle. The Houdini Principle, get it at www.houdiniprinciple.co.uk. So I invite you to think differently, think out of the box, think in front of the box, behind the box, under the box, in the box, on top of the box, um, and play with your mind, play with these questions we've been talking about. Read the Houdini Principle. It could open your eyes to new wealth, profit, and possibilities. So Godspeed to everybody. I will talk to you again next month. Joe